Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dan Grissom, site pastor here at Green Trails. I want to welcome you to worship. Uh, one of the pieces of paper you received is a sermon notes page. And if you'd like to follow along, I've included a lot of my notes, a lot of my thinking, a lot of my references and so forth, and handy way to uh, take this home and study it. I, uh, I heard a study that said by Wednesday you forget 95% of what I say. So uh, trying to work with that a little bit and give you some additional ways to remember what we talk about on the weekend. Well, we've, uh, we've been in the 13th chapter of Romans. Last week we started. We'll finish today. That means that we have uh, just uh, 14, 15, and 16, three more chapters in Romans. So how many more weeks? Four more weeks. Sorry. We're going to split one of those up. Uh, but we are drawing to the end. The amazing thing about Paul and his writings and uh, his letters is he follows a pattern in pretty much all of his letters. And what he does is he starts with the truth of God, the doctrine, if you would, and he moves to the doing. And a couple of weeks ago in chapter 12, we turned that corner, and today we want to continue that discussion, and we're going to look at the most foundational, fundamental characteristic of the entire Christian life. Have I got your interest? You need to know this. It's so important. Before we begin our discussion, would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word Thank you for books like the book of Romans that tell us clearly who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, that also move us to doing. Move us to, to be able to, to live out the Christian life. Today, bless us with your Spirit's teaching today, our hearts and our minds. Just make it, Father, just make it real for us, each of us today, how you would have us to live your good, acceptable, and perfect will in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we turned a corner when we went through Romans chapter 12. I want to take you back there for just a minute before we finish up with chapter 13 to this very important verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12. It begins this way, simply says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I beg you is another way to say that. And, and Paul is saying, look, here's what you do. You, because of God's mercy, you present yourself, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, he's already said this is really hard to do. All we have to do is go back to Romans 7, right, where he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I do. And so living sacrifices, the problem with living sacrifices is that we tend to want to crawl away from the altar. Okay? We don't want to stay there. And it's a constant battle in the Christian life to stay with it, the doing part of our faith, isn't it? Paul recognizes that, but he says, look, present yourself as a living sacrifice. He uses these words, holy and acceptable to God. Now, aren't we already holy and acceptable to God through Christ? Of course we are, but this is the tension of doing. Because it's not just the fact that we have the righteousness of Christ, it's that we are moving towards living out that righteousness as well. And he says, this is your logical or spiritual worship. And that, that word is very hard to translate, but it's logical or reasonable. Because of everything that God has done, we have this incredible opportunity to respond to that. It's the only right thing to do, the reasonable thing to do because of all that God has done for us is to always be thinking about how we live in response to the mercies of God. He continues and he says, don't be conformed to this world. So present yourself as a living sacrifice. Resist the pressure. Because there's all this pressure in the world to conform to the patterns of the world. He says resist it. 
He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what the truth of God is all about, right? Because it's truth that comes into our minds that adjusts our thinking, that rearranges the pattern of thought that leads to new behavior. And, and so we, we know that we can, we can be transformed by truth. So important to understand. And if we get to this point, then, by the way, we test. Then our whole lives become, hey, let, let me measure my life against what God says is right. And what Paul identifies as good, acceptable, and perfect, the will of God. So do you want the will of God in your life? Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Say, God, here I am, take me, use me, whatever it is you want to do. Do that first. Then resist being conformed to the world. Be transformed by the truth. Test what you know. And, and you will experience, you will know the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in your life. You'll begin to, to see where you need to grow, where you need to do, how you need to live out the Christian life. You see, we all have gaps, don't we? We have gaps between where we want to be as Christians and, and where God wants us to be. And we'll always have gaps. I want you to understand that. We'll always have those gaps. But that doesn't excuse us from working towards being better. And so you can remember, good, acceptable, and perfect, just remember that that stands for gap. God's good, acceptable, and perfect is better than we are today, but we can get better. We can take steps in our living out of our Christian life, and that's what the rest of the book of Romans is about. That's why this chapter is so important. How do we do that? Where should we go? How should we act? And today we're going to talk about even the most foundational of all things for Christians, and that's the gift of his love and how it works in our hearts and lives, how we should love. You know, we uh, learned after we went through this, we talked about the life, our life in church, what it's like to be a part of the body in chapter 12. And then Mark looked through eight different characteristics of Christian, uh, Christians, especially when it comes to uh, our enemies sometimes, how we behave. And last week, Tony worked with us on understanding authority and how we respond to authority in this world. It's a difficult, especially in today's world, difficult for us to, to look at that and honor and respect authority. And, and last week, as he ended, Tony read this verse. And we're going to go back to that verse, verse 7, before we jump into 8. It says this, that we should pay to all what is owed to them. So you see, the idea is that when, when we as Christians have a debt, we understand that with honesty, integrity, and hard work, we pay our debts, whatever those debts are, whether they're financial debts or whether they're debts for respect and honor. Whenever there's a debt, there's an obligation, right? We understand this in our lives today. If there's a debt, there's an obligation, and Christians pay their obligations. They meet their obligations. You know, and uh, so when it comes to taxes and revenues, we know that because we live in the state of Illinois, right? I mean, come on. But as Christians, we work hard, we have integrity, we're honest, and we pay our debts. And then Paul starts this section that we're going to study today, he starts it with these words, Oh, no one, anything. So what does Paul mean by that? I mean, come on. There's student debt and mortgage debt, you know, and all kinds of credit card debt. I mean, all this different debt, really? We're not supposed to have any debt at all? Is that what you mean, Paul? 
Well, Scripture doesn't teach that debt, financial debt, in, in, uh, specifically, is prohibited. Jesus himself says in, in uh, Matthew 5, he says, and you have that verse in your sermon notes card. He says, hey, if somebody needs to borrow, you lend to them. But here's the challenge. Anytime we have a debt, we have an obligation. So the book of Proverbs says, look, hey, if you borrow, you become a slave, a slave to the lender. There's an obligation. That's what the whole point is. There's an obligation. And we all understand that from our lives. We've all taken out big loans. In fact, how many of you guys remember taking out your first mortgage if you've ever done that? I mean, you're like looking at the stack of papers you have to sign and saying, what am I getting myself into, right? I remember Susan and I did that 30 years ago when we first moved to Chicago. And we signed those papers. And then what happens? Here's what happens. I owe, I owe, and it's off to work I go. <laughs> right? Because I have an obligation, and I work hard to meet that obligation. Here's a picture of our first house we were building it. Wow, isn't she cute? She still is cute. We have to celebrate our 41st wedding anniversary tomorrow, and I'm just such a lucky guy. How about that, huh? But we built this house, you know, and, and we worked hard and we scrimped and saved and we met our obligations. In fact, not only is it our anniversary week, a very important thing's going to happen this week, we are actually paying off our mortgage. How about that? After all those years. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a mortgage burning ceremony, you know. It's going to be great. You see, because there's a great freedom in that. Because when you have a debt, I want you to understand this, there's what? There is a obligation and you pay it as Christians. We work hard. We have honesty and integrity. Now here's though something that Paul does here in Romans 8. Now he turns this around on us a little bit. He says, don't have any debts but one. There is one debt that's allowed except to love one another. You're not to have any debts but you are to have a debt of love. It's like, Paul, what does that mean? It means this. It means whenever you encounter someone else, no matter where you are, you encounter them with a debt of love. And you can make a payment in that moment, in that encounter. A payment of mercy and forgiveness, of grace and prayer. You can encounter that person and you can bless them. I had this experience last night. I ordered some Chinese food uh, to celebrate with my wife a little bit uh, last night. And I went into the Chinese, I ordered about... Uh, a half an hour ahead of time, and they said, oh, you know, it's going to be 40 minutes. So I walked up, you know, thinking, oh, 35 minutes, you know, it's going to be ready over an hour and 15 minutes before I got my food. I didn't feel like blessing those people <laughs> in that moment, right? Because when we encounter people, it's usually all about what we get. And Paul's saying, no, you've got a debt. Every situation, every circumstance, you've got a debt to pay, the debt of love. And that's what we want to talk about. That's the foundational principle of the Christian life that Jesus wants us to grasp, that we have a debt of love. See, when we talk about the word love here, it's the word agape. And it's a different kind of love. It's not the brotherly love or romantic love concept. It's agape is, is this. This is C.S. Lewis's definition. Selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. Selfless love, not selfish love that looks out for itself, but selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. 
And so we have this debt whenever we encounter another person. Now, you, if you're like me, there's many times in your day, like I was last night, where when I, have, when I look at the supply of love in my heart, I go, oh, so hard, isn't it? I mean, I was tired and worn out and hungry, and, and here I was. I just preached on it, and I was having a hard time doing it. You ever been there? You know, we know we're supposed to do this, but how in the world is it possible? Especially when there's some people that have so many people to take care of. You know, it's, it, you think, how could they ever pay a payment of love in every encounter that we have? This is, the, this is what we're called to, though. This is the debt that we have. This is the debt that has an obligation. This is the debt that we work hard and we honestly hope to pay every time we meet someone. Because every debt has what? An obligation. And what we're saying here is that we have an obligation to love. How can we do it? Well, Jesus says this, or John writes this about Jesus. He says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, our supply of love is extremely limited as a human being, but endless through Christ. So if we find ourselves struggling to love, if you find yourself impatient with another person, if you find yourself frustrated in line at a Chinese restaurant, you turn to that cross. And you remind yourself with the truth of God what he has done for you and how much he's loved you and your debt of love to share that with the world, to share that love with the world. You see, Jesus says this. He said this is so important because love is the identifying mark on a Christian. Did you know that? People, people look at Christianity today and a lot of times they don't think very positively about it. It's because we are not bearing the mark of Christ, which is love. Jesus says this about that. He says, by this, by this love, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And over a hundred times in Scripture, we, we see this one another concept come up, and over a third of those times, it's to love one another, to be in unity with one another, to demonstrate to the world who Jesus is. This is the debt that we all have. This is the debt that we owe. And so he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want you to think of that in light of our study of the book of Romans. Because Paul said we can't fulfill the law, didn't he? Didn't we study that in Romans chapter 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what in the heck is Paul trying to tell us here? That, that when you love, you fulfill the law. Well, let's just review this concept of the law. We've talked about it already when we studied Romans chapter 8. We have a new relationship with the law. And it starts like this. First of all, we're called to believe the truth. The truth of God's law. That the law and everything that is good, acceptable, and pleasing is the truth that's really undeniable. Now, many people in the world struggle with this. They don't believe that. They don't accept it. In fact, courts will override God's truth or attempt to. They'll say, oh, no, that's not true. But it doesn't make it not true. And our world is suffering a truth crisis as a result. But a Christian comes to the Word and says, hey, that's true. That's good acceptable and perfect. That's the gap between God and between me. And, and while Christ has made that gap 
filled that gap, I am now called to live out that gap. To live to be better. I can never love perfectly, but I can love better. And of course, what happens for the Christian is we're crushed by the requirements of the law because we can't keep them. We know that. We can't keep them perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it leads us here. It leads us to the cross. And at the cross, we know and reminded again and again and again, you have been made righteous. You have been declared justified just as if I have never sinned. So the requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us. But it doesn't stop there, and that's why this pattern in Paul's writing is so important. It says, because you have been, you now can be guided by the law in your life. I want you to think of it this way. Simply this. Jesus fulfills the law for us. He does it for us so the law can be fulfilled through us. That we can, in turn, love the world. That we can serve the world. That our lives could be good, acceptable, and pleasing and a demonstration of the mark of Christ on our lives. You see, it continues. It continues on. And, and Jesus, he's summarized this. He summarized it. You've heard that sermon before where he comes out and says, hey, everything in the whole of the law is summarized with the idea of loving God and loving neighbors. Well, what Paul does is he basically repeats Jesus' thought. He starts talking about the different commandments. You know, he says, hey, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, uh, or any other commandment. All the commandments are summed up in this, this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love becomes the fulfillment of the law. It captures the entire, entire meaning of the law. And, and it's not just the negative things, the things you shouldn't do, because every commandment in the law has a positive side too. So you should not commit adultery, meaning you should support God's view of sexuality in marriage. It's a positive, not just a restriction. Or you shall not murder. doesn't mean you shouldn't just kill. You should support life and the meaning of life and what that means. You see, there's always a positive. You've got to be very careful, honestly, about the negative and positives. I, I, I ran across this. Uh, I thought it was kind of humorous because back in the 16th century, they published a version of the Bible and they made one small typo. I just thought you might enjoy seeing it. Thou shalt commit adultery. You can imagine that was a popular Bible, right? So there's a positive and a negative to every commandment. And as I said, Jesus summarized everything. He said, look, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. And that law has been fulfilled for you through Christ so that it can be fulfilled through you. And that's the doing part. It's not just doctrine, it's doing for us as Christians. If you've studied the Ten Commandments, you know there are two tables. There's the table, the first table, which is all about our relationship with God. That's the first commandment. And the second table, which is people. And so we have a vertical and a horizontal plane that we're, we're concerned about as Christians. We have a relationship with God, but if we don't understand that that leads us to a relationship with people, a relationship of love, we're in trouble. Whenever we're short supply of love in the horizontal, we need to go back to the vertical. 
and say, God, let's, let's have another talk. Remind me again. Fill me up again. Show me again how I can love. Paul repeats this idea one more time just so we don't miss it. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And everybody at that point wants to know, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Remember, that was kind of the question that Jesus answered with the parable of the Good Samaritans. Do you, do you know your neighbors? Do you know them by name? Do you ever pray for them? You see, all of us want to know, like, well, when we have to love somebody, well, who are we talking about? Because some people are harder to love than others, right? And so if it's the right neighbor, that might not be too bad. But when Jesus answers the question, he says, well, your neighbor is everybody. And just let me ask you again, though. Do you know your neighbors? Do you love them? Do you pray for them? If you'd like to get some help with that, on the back of your Connect card, there's a box you can check. And I'll send you a way that you can be reminded every day or however, whatever frequency you want to pray for your neighbors by name. And they'll even give you your neighbors' names. It's a great way to learn who your neighbors are. It's a great way to love them and bless them. You can check on the back of the Connect card. There's a little place to just check, and I'll send you the information on how you can do that. For all of us, though, here's the thing. You know, when we, when we start rationalizing who's my neighbor, the real issue, I love this quote by John Piper. But once we're done trying to establish that, the decisive issue of love remains. That is, what kind of person am I? Am I going to love as Jesus has called us to love? Am I going to do that? as a follower of Christ? Am I going to move from knowing about something to action? You know, you can fake a lot of things in religion, but you can't fake love. Because love is action, observable. It's the mark of Christ at work in our world today. Now, Paul says, look, not only do you have a debt of love, but it's an urgent debt. And he says this, he says, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. This is what my wife said this morning when the alarm went off. She said, time to get up, Dan. What Paul is saying is it's been 30 years since Christ rose from the dead, and they were beginning to forget the fact that there's a linear timeline for the earth, and this all ends someday. And we need to be aware that there's an urgency to this, and it may end for us much sooner than when Jesus returns. But he says, look, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In other words, every day we grow closer. To Christ's return. And every year, you know, when I look around at our world and I say, you know, man, it just can't get too much worse. Lord, come back. Come, Lord Jesus. And then what happens? It gets worse. All right? But still, in our hearts and minds, we should know that it is going to happen. And I think one of the reasons that we don't talk about it much is there's, there's too many people that are posting signs like this, saying it's going to happen on this certain day. And Jesus says, you won't know the day or the hour, but it is going to happen. Don't forget that. Don't just dismiss the whole concept because these kinds of ideas are in our world today. It is going to happen. It's a guaranteed promise. This is from Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry and the command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Graves will open. Bodies will be gloriously reassembled and we will rise again if you die before Jesus comes. I know it sounds like a science fiction movie. This is the truth of God. And we know it's true because Christ rose from the dead. And then everybody else who's left will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Isn't that amazing? 
Don't forget that. There's an urgency here. There are people that will not come out of those graves, and we need to tell them, we need to love them. We need to show them the love of Christ. So the night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is saying, look, you need to walk in the light, the light of love, the light that everybody sees. This is your armor. This is your protection against the evil things of this earth because it's so easy for us as living sacrifices to crawl off the altar, kind of slink away, isn't it? To drift, to move away from Christ. He says, you've got to put on armor. You've got to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You've got to be testing that in your life. And he goes on and he, he deals with some of the issues that they were dealing with in, in Rome. And they sound a little bit like some of the things that we deal with today. You, you might think, well, that's not me, but think of our culture. Think of our views on so many things and how, how, how what was used to be held up as good is thought of as bad. And like we said, it doesn't seem like it, it can get much worse. But it's so easy to be drawn back in, into this. He says, put on the armor of light, the armor of what is good, acceptable, and perfect so that you can love in a way that people will see Christ. Don't get caught up in this stuff is what he's saying. And whatever that stuff is, in whatever culture you live in, at whatever time in the world, the challenge is not to lose our focus. Time is short. Paul ends this section, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ. And I just, I just ask you, have you not already had that done? Didn't you put on Christ in your baptism, our scripture says? The answer is yes. In Galatians, it says that. But Paul again moves from doctrine to doing, and he says, look, that's not a done deal. That's why he writes, you've got to work out your salvation. You've got to put on Christ every day. You've got to walk in the light. Does this make sense? Because living sacrifices do what? They crawl off the altar. It's all of our problems. We need to be challenged in our lives to love. And my challenge for you today is to love is to love, to make a payment in every person's life that you encounter, to make a payment. We can never love perfectly. We can always love better because you're carrying the mark of Christ, love. You know, I think our mission statement says that we're to look, live, and do what? Love like Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about, that agape love, that selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. And by the way, if you struggle with that, as we all do, when you, when you say, I don't have any love in me to give, what are you going to do? Go back to the cross. Let it fill you up. You can do far more than you can ever think or imagine.